Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Today's a little different. I'm interviewing someone from the VC world to shed some light on the funding environment today and what they're looking for in startups. My guest today is Kieran O'Leary, who's the co-founder and general partner at Blue Yard Capital. Blue Yard was founded in 2016 and has made close to 30 investments across two 120 million funds. Blue Yard has invested in the US, South America, and Europe. The firm's portfolio spans a few very interesting areas, everything from decentralization of the web through next generation protocols to separation of state institution and money. That's things like cryptocurrencies, like Decred, which is one of their portfolio companies, as well as untangling the knowledge worker software monopolies. And they also invest in areas where nature can help re-architect markets from the bottom up. So really interesting focus areas. I'm definitely going to dig more into it, but that's what they do. And prior to co-founding Blue Yard, Kioran was a partner at VC firm Early Bird. And before that, he was with Carlisle Group and Lazard. So welcome, Kioran. Yeah, uh, great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So the first thing that struck me about Blue Yard is your mission, transforming ideas that decentralize markets and empower humanity. That doesn't sound like the typical VC company. So maybe we can start off with you telling me a little bit more about the vision and why you created Blue Yard, because it seems to me that it wasn't just another company for you. Yeah, so with Blue Yard, we had the opportunity to start with a blank piece of paper. And it was obvious that Jason and I wanted to build our own venture firm. But if we're building our own venture firm, we might as well build it around our passions and what we care about. And as personalities, we're not that opportunistic or generalistic, but we like to take a view on the world, read up on it, form a thesis and invest around it. And I remember it exactly. It was sometime late 2015 in uh, the airport in Austin, Texas, and we were still working on our thesis. And the word that kept on popping up was democratization. And we were really excited about open source movements and companies democratizing technology or democratizing skills through technology. And then through some wordsmithing and, and iterations, it became decentralization and empowerment, which are like two sides of the same coin. What do you mean by there are two sides of the same coin? So if you want to have markets that are more open, more free, are less reliant on archaic institutions or less vulnerable to monopolies, you have to empower each individual in a network or empower smaller organizations to like acquire skills that typically were associated with a large company or an institution. And so empowerment and decentralization sort of work hand in hand. Got it. Now that makes sense. So this thesis sounds really lofty and and very visionary. And I was curious, when you went to raise money for the two funds that you created, how was this, this thesis received by the people that you were going out to get funding from? Yeah, I would say the thesis was one of, one of I don't know, three or four pillars our, our fundraising stood on. Of course, there was the history of Jason and I having worked together 
for many years of having a, a solid track record of you know, hopefully having some good references and hopefully still today. But then, you know, there's a a pretty large amount of um, people and investors that would fit that description. And uh, I remember in the early days of our fundraise, we wanted to build a next generation, more US approach like fund in Europe. And we were trying to understand how we would focus it. And somebody we really like and admire who became actually a big investor in Blueyard said, well, what's the one sentence? What does Blueyard stand for? And we totally goofed it. And we said, this is terrible. <laughs> we, we need, they're like, this is not okay because we, we, we do want to stand for something. And so in fact, I would say that the LPs we were very lucky to get actually loved the fact and wanted us to, to stand for something and to have a, a framework we can rally and in, in, in invest around so that we're not just, quote unquote, another random uh, opportunistic fund open bracket, there are many highly successful random and opportunistic funds. So it's not a, this is a better approach. This is just the approach that suits us. Okay. And is there, what's the break, current breakdown of where your funds come from? And does that impact your investments? So our, yeah, our, our, our LP, so our investors are mainly U.S. university endowments and foundations. And we have one Israeli fund of fund. And it does not really impact anything except that we're very fortunate to have them they're very experienced they've been doing venture capital for geez 40 50 years in some cases and so they help us network to other good venture firms and transfer best practices and our mandate is actually not geographic so we don't have any geographic constraints having said that given that we live in Europe and we're very excited about sort of an asymmetric opportunity in Europe, I think it's their expectation that, you know, hopefully we will also do good things in Europe. Okay. Okay. And if I look at it from the startup um, ecosystem side, how did you go about finding companies that fit this vision and these pillars, these theses that you have? Did you find them um, in Europe? Are you across all the geographies? Can you give us a little bit more around how your current breakdown of investments is by region? Yeah. So Blue Yard One, I don't have the exact numbers on the top of my head, but my, my assumption is it's roughly half US, half Europe. Having said that, a lot of the companies that are in the US originated in Europe and may have moved there or the founders, we intercepted them on while they were on their way to, to fly to, to the US. So I would say that the, the origins are probably 60-70% by Europe. Having said that, with our thesis in Blue Yard 1, we, we did, maybe we were a little bit early because we wanted to focus on the most disruptive, nonlinear things. We wanted to do things that other people wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) Europe was just beginning to shift away from like e-commerce and like regional companies into things with more ambition, also more engineers and more scientists becoming founders versus business people. Fast forward to Blue Yard 2, it really is much more Europe-centric because the opportunity set has has really grown. And it's really been, you know, we have everything furthest north, as you know, is Reykjavik in Iceland. Furthest east is, is, is Bratislava. We haven't gone that far south yet. I think Munich is our most <laughs> further, uh, southern, which doesn't really count. Eastern Europe, the UK. 
And how do we source it? It's because we stand for something and we try to build networks around our thesis and our focus areas. We really are like a boutique firm where the partners roll up their sleeves, work the network and really try and get out there. And we don't so much like pull the ocean and just talk to every company. And that has its upside. We can focus and maybe we have a higher degree of credibility for a certain type of entrepreneur. It has its downsides that we miss opportunities that are great investments, but don't fit our focus. And, and for that, like you said, you do very focused networking. Do you go to universities that specialize in those areas? How are you going to find deals that are specific in those focus areas? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned university. I would have said in the past, not so much in, in Europe. Today, very much so because we invest in, in, in sort of the, the future of biology, programmatic biology, computational biology, synthetic biology, and also heavy-duty engineering, like fusion reactors and, and those kind of things. And they tend to have a very strong basis in academia. And a lot of the founders are spin-outs of, of well-established labs. So in that area, we have actually had to learn and have put in quite some, some legwork into getting closer to, to universities. And there are some great lighthouse universities spread all across, across Europe. In the other areas that are sort of more software-driven, it does tend to be more you know, keeping relationships with key angels, with entrepreneurs that are leaving a company and now building their next thing. And it's much more of a personal network-based search. And a lot of our things in biology and engineering have a, a much stronger academic component. That's, that's correct. Okay. So we talked about focus areas. Uh, we talked about geos. What about stage of investing? I see a lot of VCs define themselves by their yeah. focus area and also their stage of investing. Yeah. And I'm curious um, if you have that focus and B, is there a reason that VCs do that? Why aren't there VCs yeah. that do multi-stage? Like, you know, this company, yeah. you invested in them. And then why are you not growing with that company? Yeah, so we do. So our, our focus is the seed and series A stage, typically late seed companies. So there's a early product, there's a small team, but there might not yet be product market fit. There may not be any commercial traction. And we like to be the first institutional money. It don't have to be, but it's our preference to take the highest institutional risk available in, in the market. And that means typically we're investing somewhere between two and three million out of rounds that are maybe three to five. Having said that, we've every now, every now and then done bigger investments where we'll invest $5 million or where we're just backing a team we really like, but they have nothing. <laughs> we'll maybe just do, do a million and like to be clear lead investors, roll up our sleeves, and we don't depend on any other investor and don't, don't build conviction based on other people's um, opinions. Why do funds do that? Well, one, you know, it, it is very different working with an early-stage company with maybe 5 to 10 on the team, a very different set of challenges uh, than if, if, if you're used to working with teams that have 
post-product market fit or scaling revenues need to build a large organization and are going from you know 30 people to 200 people over the next two years. And so I, I think some VCs might be talented at doing all of the above. I think we are less excited about managing, scaling, and organizational design of hundreds of people, but are really excited about iterating uh, in going from zero to one. And then the other thing is, is just, you know, you want to dedicate your time and your effort. And for us, every company we invest in, we take very seriously, we dedicate all of our time and resources to it. And if we were to do all big later stage investments and small little seed investments, it would be obvious that we might treat the small seed investments differently. And so I think the combination of the two le- leads to sort of a focus on the early stages on our side. So you said well, you're very focused on the investments that you make. What kind of a VC would you say you are? Are you very hands-on? Do you get very operational? What's your mode of advising on operating with your portfolio of companies? And how many investments do you make in a year? So we make somewhere between five and seven to eight on average, if I would put it that way. And I would say we're pretty active, borderline very active. However, we really um, work hard to respect the VC entrepreneur relationship and boundaries. So we don't pretend that we know things better. We don't pretend that we know how to run a business or build a product because we don't. And and the other thing is is that we try and tailor our engagement to what the founder is like. So it, it, some of our founders love being on WhatsApp day and night and and want to run everything by you. And it doesn't matter. We just have to be there, right? And give feedback, give input. Other founders want to engage maybe once every couple of weeks and are highly targeted in what they would like from us or the input that we would give. And that's okay. So we really try and come up with a bespoke model. The other thing is, is that we have a philosophy that our founders have a relationship with all of Blue Yard. So it isn't just this, this partner does this investment and this partner does this investment and, and they don't really know each other, but they get to know the whole team. And we also have platform services. We have a, a head of platform at the firm who tries and uh, brings in services and other the relationships and a network. And so, yeah, I, high engagement model. And if our, if our founders are doing poorly, we're probably also doing poorly and not sleeping well and, and the other way around. That's, that's the way we want to have it. Interesting. I obviously want to get into a little bit about the current environment and what has changed. But before that, I had one other question on your investment focus areas. Given how I think specialized those areas are, did you and Jason have expertise in those areas and do you understand it deep enough to be able to evaluate the different companies or do you have experts that you rely on when you're evaluating technologies in those areas? You know, crypto, peer-to-peer protocols, networks, some of our next generation working tool things. Those are, we have a longer history there, not in terms of building products, but investing in companies and being on boards and seeing different strategies play out, in particular open source software. In biology and breakthrough engineering, we really just took our time. We assumed and still assume until today that we're dummies (laughs) and built a network, did a lot of education and tippy-toed our way in. And then you know what happens. All of a sudden, you grasp the most important elements. And and the same in software. If you invest in a SaaS company, you you don't really have to understand the server architecture, right, in in detail. But you can understand the market implications and the the technology stack used. And similar concepts apply to biology and engineering, although I will say it is a bit more meaty. (laughs) And then we recruited different people to the Blue team, 
people with a background in biology and in engineering and added a venture partner and EIR. But then one or two of our portfolio companies were fortunate to raise big up rounds from other investors in the space. And all of a sudden you have a network. And, and so slowly, slowly gaining momentum. But I think at the core of it, always you know, being very honest with ourselves. What do we know? What do we not know? And even doubt taking more time to find out. And we'll be very open with our entrepreneurs about it. We'll say, if you want to get into the, the goriest of wet lab details on how to do this type of organism design, we're not going to help you there. But if you want to have conversations on the intersection on of biology and computation and how to build an organization and a go-to-market strategy, we'll be pretty strong at that. And so, right. and then lastly, sorry for the long ramble, is when we invest in a company, usually we'll have a board and we'll just have one seat and hopefully we'll try and attract other board members that maybe have a, a different competence and are much more in, in the technology itself. And that's how we try and work. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. In those four areas and the companies that you find in Europe, the competencies that you find, and I know I'm... I'm, I'm making it quite general when I say Europe, every country is unique. Yeah. I think open source is one that I think Europe has quite a bit of legacy in, but is it a good match is what I'm trying to understand between the areas where you fund companies and the types of companies that exist across Europe? Yeah, of course I'm biased, but I would say yes. And that, that wasn't always the case, which is why in Blue Yard 1, we had a, a much higher ratio of US investments and even even South America. And that was very much driven by where are we finding the best opportunities in, in our thesis areas. But interblue are two. Well, one, I, I, I absolutely share your um, opinion that you know Europe has a, a strong history in open source software, but maybe even more importantly, has really doubled down in terms of now also creating really big category leaders in, in SaaS and enterprise software. And that used to be an elusive like Stop yep. here. So now people are, are changing that, but you know, still gathering steam on, on, on the commerce side. Gaming was always strong and, and consumer things. But what has really happened is that engineers and product people and scientists are now becoming founders versus the just quote unquote just the business people. And that has really been the game changer over the last four years. And, and if we look at the groundswell of um, breakthrough technologies, and it doesn't matter if it's in a very advanced piece of you know, protocol design or if it's in synthetic biology, the types of personalities that are now willing to become entrepreneurs has, has changed. And so I think we're betting on that continuing to, to increase. No, that's fantastic to hear that people with deep technical expertise and background want to actually make an impact in a commercial way. It's ha it happened because there are entrepreneurial templates and entrepreneurship in Europe has gone native and there are much better systems. But there are also things like EF in London, you know, which has really created like a, a brand and a, and a movement around entrepreneurship, around science. And there are other examples. So all of the infrastructure is falling in place and Blue Earth is just like one small part in, in a network, but that that's going to stay. Like that, that stuff doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah. And in, in the other ones where you talked about the enterprise type of companies that were not so prevalent in Europe, why is there more of a fertile ground for those type of companies as well? Yeah. So first of all, like all of the groundswell of entrepreneurship starting more on the consumer and commerce side, you know, that's still 
led to companies and startups needing a lot of software engineers and product people and designers. So just the talent base working for startups, working on software, no matter what the end application is, really grew. Uh, then also just SaaS changed the distribution uh, game. And, you know, whipping out the credit card and having small accounts and then going upsell. So, so just change where you build and where you can sell. And then a lot of U.S. money started flowing into Europe. And a lot of good U.S. enterprise software investors came with networks and with playbooks on how to build these companies. A lot of European companies then established a footprint in the U.S. pretty quickly to make sure that they, they control the market and, and enter it and can raise more money there. And so it's all of these factors coming together. And then, of course, once you have two, three, four, five big successful enterprise software companies, it's easier to build six, seven, eight to whatever N will end up being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everybody knows about Stockholm and London and Berlin as, you know, hubs for technology, innovation, the startup hub. But I read somewhere that there are actually over 12 cities in Europe that have a developer population of 50,000 and plus. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that to me says that there's a lot of amazing talent yeah. here. What's missing? So I think less and less as you just see it become more native. I personally don't buy so much into the notion that funding is lacking. I think that the, 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 I mean, let's talk about COVID in a minute and how that has changed. But in general, there's quite a lot of funding available and it's really been growing. There are, there are really two things that Europe doesn't have and that certainly Israel and the U.S. have in a big way. And of course, China. One is a willingness of big companies to, to buy software from startups, right? So you, U.S. software startups have a much easier job in selling, you know, big, big volume deals to customers because there's a higher degree to experiment, to try new things as a sort of competitiveness. And big European companies are more like, oh, I'll choose SAP because, you know, I won't get fired. I guess the saying is you won't get fired for IBM, but let's, let's use SAP as a European uh, <laughs> example. The other thing is more like this perpetual flywheel. So in Silicon Valley, Israel, maybe not so much, but I guess Israel is kind of attached at, at the hip to, to Silicon Valley in, in certain ways is companies, big companies being much more acquisitive of startups and, 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 and paying high prices for strategic value versus just mm -hmm. for metrics and KPIs. And so that was to the detriment of the startup scene in Europe, but actually U.S. companies just started buying more and more. But it really is to the detriment of large European companies because they are just, if you look at how stale European economies have become, and if you look at the churn of the, of the economy in the U.S., how every 20 years it refreshes itself with the new competitive set, and we're still stuck with the big names from like after the Second World War, yeah. uh, like, like that, that's an issue. And one reason is they have, have missed the opportunity to you know, acquire great technology and new strategic fields early on. So I would say that that's missing, but that shouldn't stop anybody from building today. Like I would say... Today, you actually have very little excuses <laughs> um, to not go and, and, and have a shot at it. Yeah. And our startups, um, is the trend to first find European venture capital if they're based in Europe and then go to the U.S.? Or are you seeing any trend where they're just going directly? Certainly, the, the market for 
venture capital, even early stage venture capital, even angel slash seed rounds has become very global nearly. So in the past, yeah, as a venture fund, you could get away by saying, oh, I'm the local fund in Berlin or Stockholm or London and everybody is going to come to me. But now founders are more like, okay, who's the best fund or the best person for my business? And if they can get in front of that person, and it, it nearly doesn't matter where that person is. There are, of course, there is probably the earlier you go, there's a higher skew towards working with investors that at least you can fly to within two, three hours. And the later you go, the less important that becomes. However, let me, let me make one thing really clear. It, like That extends to Europe. So people will never, I think, never ever think anymore, who should I talk to in my city? But mm-hmm. at a minimum, who should I talk to within Europe? And so that's why also European funds have had to retool themselves because they don't have this, hey, I'm, I'm the local person competitive advantage anymore. Right. It's similar to the startup world. When a company starts up in Europe, they need to think global from day one Mm -hmm. because the market isn't enough. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is VCs need to have a focus area and build expertise, but they need to think global for that focus area and expertise rather than my advantage is being local. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The best founders, they they don't, they don't want that anymore. They don't want the, the local folks. (laughs) Okay. Well, good for the audience who's hearing to keep that in mind, to go for expertise um, in your area rather than just the local. Okay. So I want to talk obviously about the current situation and wanted to understand how has a crisis impacted your business? What are you doing differently since the lockdown began? Um, So... You know, the first thing is we just tried not to overreact. So we didn't call any of our companies and sort of told them, oh my goodness, you need to cut costs and uh, do all these kind of things. But sort of really just took took a while, sat on our hands and just looked at the data, looked at the companies, talked to our founders and sort of really tried to first understand before recommending actions or going into actions. Of course, out of whatever our 30 investments, we had one or two that were just materially impacted overnight and they they did have to reconfigure relatively quickly. We were fortunate in the sense that we had put out two term sheets just before the the lockdown and we we honored those terms and and closed the investments without any kind of uh, commotion. And we also had a a couple of big follow-on financings that hopefully will be announced in the next couple of weeks. So we were so busy the first couple of weeks of the lockdown that we could never... We couldn't really think about what does it all mean. Now that we're we're in it a bit deeper or coming out the other side, I think it is an opportunity for a lot of startups because it changes an opportunity. And startups usually compete on being change agents in, in, in markets or change agents for companies. So a, a lot of companies will, will have this as an opportunity. The, the second thing is, is that society, I think, is going to place a premium on, on innovation and on resilience and you know, on doing things differently. And the willingness to change is just like skyrocketing. And so I think those are good things. Now, the, the capital markets did change. So there's there's a big capital overhang. So the money, the market is still awash with capital. But of course, every venture fund is now, okay, we need to maybe save some companies that are harder hit, we still believe in, or we don't know when will we be able to raise our next fund, so we have to slow down. And the other thing is, there's a new way of working. Are you willing to do a large financing over Zoom? 
without mm-hmm. having met somebody. And uh, we did notice a slight delta between what people were saying on Twitter and what they were telling <laughs> some of our entrepreneurs in, in fundraise. And I would say this is that for smaller rounds, C, maybe small A's, there was actually a, a good amount of funds that, that was willing or still is willing to really just do things via Zoom. For larger rounds, it often there's been some kind of prior relationship or they've met the founders before and they're making it sound like, oh, look, we did this over Zoom. But it's like, yeah, but you were talking for two years. So, <laughs> um, so, so I think if you're raising larger amounts of money, and you're not a company where just everybody wants to desperately get in, it's going to take more time. You have to talk to more people. And if you can extend your runway, maybe maybe we'll be able to travel back to the US in, in the fall. But there still is plenty of, of capital um, out there. And funds want to deploy. However, I will say this is that they'll just probably be more risk averse. They'll be slower. And because some of them will be unsure when they can raise their own next funds, that they might just spread out their their cadence. But I think there there are two things to think about. One is just like COVID, lockdown, economy, travel, whatever. But then there are things on the horizon. High unemployment rates, civil unrest, geopolitical attentions. So it's very tempting and easy to just focus on like the emergency now, like I can't travel, but there are much bigger rocks to worry about. And I think factoring those into how you want to build your business are are more important. I I think you're absolutely right. I think, and you mentioned the three biggest sort of rocks that are on the horizon. How have you thought about those, those three rocks for what Blue Yard should do and how are you and Jason sort of thinking about navigating that? Are you thinking of less investments, longer term investments? What are some other strategies? Um, yeah, so we're, we're, we, we, we're very lucky that we just switched to our latest fund last summer and we had only done one investment before COVID hit in a big way. And so lots of fresh money and we're active. So we don't want to artificially slow down. Having said that, it has maybe radicalized us <laughs> in, in a way of saying, you know what, let's dial our focus even more to the extreme things that can really change how markets and societies will work for the better instead of the like, oh, this is cool, we're excited about the team, and yeah, we can understand how it attacks this software competitor, but does it really matter in the wider universe of things? Maybe not that much. Let's dial those down a bit and dial up the very extreme things. And so we've we've gone into a single molecule cancer diagnostics and programmable cell therapies and if you double down on fusion reactors and are revisiting some of our resilience networks in the crypto space and, and resilient web protocols to make sure that we can be truthful and safe on the web. And so I would say it has radicalized us in, in, in a good way. Hmm. Okay. And do you think the VCs in the US, are they different in how they're thinking about overcoming these um, challenges that are brewing in the horizon and some that are here? Or are they doing Um, something different? Yeah, so some of them, the larger ones are probably were more preoccupied with their existing portfolio 
than us for the simple reason that Blue Yard, on, on average, you know, we're a very young firm, our portfolio is very young. So there isn't a lot of pre-IPO big companies that all of a sudden got hit and where you thought you were onto a huge winner and now you have to sort of save it. But if we were at a later stage, hopefully we would have been in that situation. So we've noticed that a lot of the bigger firms are, first of all, very preoccupied with, with internal work. And then, yes, willing to do new investments, but definitely at a slower cadence and much smaller amounts and or requesting more product market fit sort of evidence. And those felt like knee-jerk reactions is the wrong thing, but this is like the standard playbook. We have to de-risk, let's slow down, let's do things that have product market fit. And so we saw that happening. I will say this is that in the, and this is a good thing, not a bad thing. Venture firms in the US are now not just dealing with you know, COVID and, and the economy, but they're dealing with uh, civil unrest and having the seams in society come apart in, in front of their eyes. And maybe rightly so, a lot of the community is saying, well, what are you doing about it? And you're there sitting in your high horse, uh, ivory tower, Silicon Valley, and the world's fine. You know, like, what are you going to... And so I think that's... I don't know what's going to come out of it, but everybody has to think about it. And there there are demands to be thinking about it and acting about it. And so I'm hoping that will also change venture uh, in a good way. Well, you know, everything that usually happens in the U.S. has a rumbling effect on other parts of the economy and other parts of the world. And we talked a little bit about how there are a lot more, at least before all these things happened, there was a lot more U.S. money flowing into Europe in early stage because they've they've started seeing successes coming out of Europe. And do you see this changing because of A, what's happening in the US, B, what's happening globally, C, there's things like Brexit still that is going to go through. Yeah. Do, you, do you see more investments continue to flow from US and Asia into Europe in the long term? Or do you think it's going to have to be more cross-border and European VC firms are going to have to come together yeah. more? I think that it'll stay. I think there'll be an immediate drawback, of course, for a couple of quarters. Now, if things get worse in the U.S., Trump is reelected, and I don't know, civil war between California and, uh, and, 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 and somebody else. Yeah, you know, obviously all bets are off. But if we, if we take like a rational median weighted risk scenario, I think it, it will stay. Maybe it'll reduce at an earlier stage because mm. a lot of U.S. firms were just doing trip after trip and just hanging out in Berlin and London and Stockholm and bumping and, oh, yeah, why don't we just you know, build a small portfolio here? With, I think that's going to go away. But nothing has changed in terms of like, Silicon Valley will continue to do great, but entrepreneurship has been democratized and so it's doing really great elsewhere. There is a scenario I haven't really thought through and I I don't care for too much, but US funds are also highly engaged in China. Mm. And the geopolitical tensions between uh, the US and China, again, in the like rational median weighted risk scenario are probably going to increase versus decrease. And so unless they have an actual China fund with Chinese LPs and a Chinese team, I think that might change a bit. And who knows, maybe that will mean more to Israel and and more to Europe. And then just because you mentioned, I think Brexit is priced in. It's like, okay, Mm. it's going to be a mess. It's terrible. It is what it is. I think U.S. firms are still willing to invest in in the U.K. and so are European firms and and the other way around. So I think Brexit has been fully priced in (laughs) as a car crash. 
And if it isn't a total car crash, it'll be like, oh, look, look at this. What a nice surprise. So I think if European venture firms were hoping, oh, now we don't have to compete against the U.S. firms, I think that that'll be naive. But secondly, I also think that for great companies that want to raise substantial amounts of money, there'll still be capital available from the U.S. And in fact, the knock on wood may or may not work. You know, we, we might have our first U.S. firm invest in a European company only through Zoom. And it's a pretty substantial Series A and, and yeah, they just got to know each other after lockdown. And so wow. yeah, that's just one data point, but that's the data point we have. Wow, that's impressive. Looking forward to hearing about that. Turn a little bit now towards the startup point of view. So let's say we have some entrepreneurs looking to raise VC money in this environment from European funds like Blue Yard Capital. Do they have to do something differently when they pitch to you? Like, does their pitch today in this environment need to be different, maybe more focused on certain metrics or profitability or anything like that or Um, not? Not not for us, so because we tend to go in pretty early pre-product market fit. Um, The radical, the better for Blue Yard, right? (laughs) Wake us up out of our, our slumber. I think that though, when we are advising our entrepreneurs, we are saying, well, do stress on showing evidence around product market fit and good retention and do stress clarity on the business model because it's just... When venture, when the venture scene starts de-risking, it just defaults to looking at those things more. So I think that's a, a fair comment. Maybe just assuming that you can raise less over time, so you can't build this flywheel where you fund negative unit economics until some point eight years from now, pre-IPO, where you switch over. But I think there's the appetite to fund these sort of negative unit economic flywheels has probably plummeted to, to close to, to zero. It was already out of fashion, yep. but I think now it's just not, not even on the for sale shelf. And then I think the thing that we're looking for is backing teams, and I, I hope they can expect the same of us, that aren't tone deaf to what's happening in the world. Hmm. And so when we meet people, we, we usually, yeah, we want to talk about their company and their product and what, what they want to do, but we also try and find out, well, who is this person and what does she or he think? And, you know, are, are, can they grasp the dynamics of what's going on in the world? And so I think just not being tone deaf and really understanding some of the shifts that are going to go on in societies as well as markets, uh, at least with Blue Art, that's always a, a big bonus point. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I think you've sort of touched on this in your last point here about the values. What do you think makes for a good VC entrepreneur fit? Um, So one deeply human uh, question and relationship. Well, first of all, are they a partner or GP that can deliver the firm, i.e. can actually make commitments and isn't afraid of of being fired or whatever? And this is somebody who I think might be there for seven to 10 years because that's how long it's going to take to build the company. Uh, is this a person I I like or respect? You know, you don't have to be best friends, but I like and respect their view. Is this somebody I can imagine working with in good days and in bad days? Can we get into a terrible argument and then be friends uh, again? Then looking at the firm itself, you know, is it a healthy, well-capitalized firm that has a good reputation for how they treat founders during bad times? Because it's Mm. all fun and games and dandy when things are up and to the right, but most startups aren't always up and to the right. And so how do VCs 
treat founders when, when, when things are down. And just day-to-day things like does this VC have a reputation for bringing their insecurities to the board table or their ego and wants to dominate the conversation? Or can they just listen and shut up? You know, that's like one of the, the key skills one should have as a VC. So those are like the human soft factor things and, and sort of the technical things around the VC firm. But then there's, of course, also just looking at the portfolio of the VC firm and talking to the founders of the, of the, of the VC firm and saying, is that a family I want to be a part of? Mm. And that will tell you so much more than the bullet points any VC firm has written on its webpage, which is why our webpage has very little text because we said people aren't going to believe us in any case. So let's, not, let's make zero claims and then let's talk about it if, if you're interested. And then, of course, being very honest about what can I expect and what do I want from a certain type of investor and can this person and firm deliver it or not. And, and then lastly, maybe does this firm have a track record of being associated with companies that have raised a lot more money and, and have gone places and have good relationships with other investors that are like, okay, we know that this fund is involved, so things will be fine and we're more likely to invest than not. But I think you raise an important point, which is probably still too underdeveloped in Europe versus the US, and that is founders diligencing venture firms. Mm. And so founders, even if you just have one VC that wants to invest, you still want to know. (laughs) So ask for references, uh, call references that aren't on their sheet, ask them when they raise their last fund, ask them how much fresh money is left, ask them if that partner has any say in the investment committee, you know, go there. They're asking you lots of questions and you should be able to ask lots of questions back. Nice. Really good advice. Very practical as well. You've obviously, again, seen a lot of investments. What are some of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make when looking to raise money? I thought you were going to say, what are some of the biggest mistakes we've made? And I was like, okay, I don't even know where to start because uh, <laughs> if, if you have an extra hour. So lack of clarity and vision of what you are and what you aren't and why you need this raise mm-hmm. And, and, and the confidence around having crispness and clarity in the positioning. And you can tell, like the most, the most clarity you have on why you should exist in the world or why will it be a big deal, the shorter and punchier the pitch deck is. And the less secure you are, the bigger and more complicated it gets because you have to throw things at people instead of uh, being simple. The other thing is maybe, and this is in no particular order, Finding the right size. So we've seen people unnecessarily not be able to raise at all because they went up with a ridiculously large round. And then in the middle of the raise had to like, oh no, now we just want half. Oh no, now we just want a third. And and for some reason that just doesn't go across uh, well. Then the other thing is really like an athlete, train, right? Like get feedback, do marginal improvements. And so often, you know, founders will go to their favorite 20 VCs immediately in the first deck and it's still terrible and they don't have any feedback yet. And, you know, then, you know, they're on to number 21. And so choose a small group, fine tune your story, get input, maybe even get public speaking coaching. If, if you're not great at presenting or telling a narrative, 
The other thing is just managing the whole momentum of, mm. of people. So it's a fine line between keeping a high degree of intensity and then also appearing desperate. Mm. I, I think our founders are pretty good at, good at this, but like never, ever, ever be unauthentic or bullshit, right? So for example, the classic thing is, oh, we're expecting term sheets by this Friday and I need to know if you're in or not. But, well, then Monday comes along. What happens if you don't have any term sheet, right? <laughs> you're just uh, standing there. And so... That, that's something we really care about. But I would say it all starts off with clarity, a great narrative, authenticity, and the ability to convey it. And then the rest are, are mechanics right. um, or just market feedback. We might have all the clarity in the world, but it's just nobody thinks it's going to be big. <laughs> but that, that's how we like to sort of yeah, think about some form of hierarchy there. Okay. So usually at the end of um, our conversation, I have like a rapid round where I ask a bunch of short questions. But before I go there, I wanted to give you a minute to talk about maybe one or two companies in your portfolio that you're most excited about. Yeah, I think it's probably like asking parents or parents what their favorite (laughs) child is. And so let me just contrast... Can I do three just to have contrast? Yes. So the first company is called Protocol Labs, and they make an internet protocol called IPFS, the Interplanetary File System. And it changes the way the internet works from location routing. So you kind of, here's a server, it has an address, to content. So here's a file that I want, and then it gets reassembled in a decentralized way. Mm. And that way the internet becomes really resilient, really safe, really fast, and is less vulnerable to server-side monopolies. And I think it's the fastest-growing web protocol since HTTP, and so we think Protocol mm. Labs and uh, with Filecoin will go places. The second one maybe is uh, Pitch, which is just going head-on against uh, PowerPoint and Keynote and Google Slides, and it's a team that built Wunderlist and has a strong design history. And they just said, we just can't believe we're still working with software from the 90s. Let's go and, 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 and bring this into the modern day very different type of business, but, but very exciting. And then the third one, maybe just to show the kind of other things we do, it's based in Cambridge called, called BitBio, and they allow you to program stem cells. And so you take a stem cell, and then you can turn it into leather, into meat, or also into cell therapies for diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that could really lead to a breakthrough in how we treat diseases. And so just to give you like a example of the, the types of companies you might find at Blue Yard, but we're just as excited about all of the others um, and, and don't have any favorite children. <laughs> well, I, I've looked through your portfolio companies and, and I found them very interesting. I already signed up for Pitch because I've done a lot of PowerPoint in my marketing days yeah. and I totally understand the pain point and I'm I was looking to see where the next uh, reincarnation of that could be. And the stem cell one also sounds really good given everything that's going on in the world. I think it's uh, more, more, more companies need to be doing something in that area to benefit humanity. So that's definitely very exciting. Okay, so last few minutes, rapid round, really easy questions. What's your favorite book? The Road. The Road. Okay. Why? It's incredibly dark and incredibly disturbing, but it it makes it clear to you how valuable our societies and human life is. 
and it takes you to a dark spot to show you what we might lose. It's the same with blindness. I think those two books, The Road and Blindness, I love going to dark places to reappreciate are bright places. Yep. Lovely. I love the way you said that. What about in Europe? What's your favorite city? In Europe, I would say Berlin on, on balance. So I actually don't, I, I, I don't live in Berlin full time. I just go there. I just like that it's unentitled, scrappy. It, it has yet to be claimed. Everything's up in the air. It, it has lots of downsides, but no, nowhere else in Europe has that level of dynamicism to it. And so, yeah, Berlin would be the spot. What would be the one thing you would recommend for someone to do in Berlin if they went there? Berlin is a city where the, the less plans you have, the, the better. A functioning government would be, would be great. Um, <laughs> and, and functioning infrastructure would be great, but you've got to start somewhere. Maybe one of your next portfolio companies yeah, could do but, that. But, you know, I, I, I think I know this wasn't your question, but I do think one of the things we're just so fortunate in Europe is, you know, London, Berlin, Paris, Rome, Stockholm, like all of these just like amazing cities are like a short yeah. hop from each other. And so that's why, like, it's the same with favorite children. Like, I love London. I love Paris. And by the way, if I have a really allergic reaction to one thing, it is it's gotten better, but sometimes you'll see people from local ecosystems say, oh yeah, Berlin is better than Stockholm or London is better than Paris. Like, who cares? Like, <laughs> we're an amazing territory. Enjoy all of the cities. And yeah. So true. So true. I've lived in the US a lot. And um, when I first came to Europe, to London specifically, I didn't quite appreciate how wonderful Europe is. And now I just love Europe, the convenience of it, the, the variety that it has, the history that it has, and the ease with which you can travel between cities. I think it's, it's just spectacular. I love it. And uh, the lack of everyday violence. Yes, and that too. I'm just horrified with what I'm seeing happening in the U.S. Just unbelievable. But... Maybe it'll all come out in a good way. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I love the U.S. I, I'm heartbroken that I can't go there uh, right now. Heartbroken about the situation. And uh, yeah, if I had to choose U.S. cities, it might be even tougher because the, the amount of amazing cities in the U.S. is no less. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Kieran, for joining me today. Um, I learned a lot about the VC industries and about what's happening in general. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure.